this is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Eric Elgin, Chief of the Division of Cardiology at Reading Hospital and Cardiovascular Service Line Director at Tower Health System in Pennsylvania. Dr. Elgin, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Great. Thank you for having me. I feel honored to be invited. Um, I know we've got a lot to talk about before, but before we dive into our discussion, I wanted to uh, give you a chance to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. Sure. So I'm an interventional cardiologist by training. Um, I spent uh, the first part of my career in the military as a non-invasive cardiologist after going to school in Chicago. And uh, after I got out of the military, I did an interventional fellowship at University of Maryland and then joined a private practice group in uh, kind of southeastern Pennsylvania. And that worked as an interventional cardiologist for a period of time. We mostly just doing clinical care and really didn't think much about doing any kind of leadership activities. And as we began to get transitioned, I got pulled into doing some committee work in the hospital. And then ultimately our practice was acquired by the hospital and we transitioned to an employed model. And at that point, um, I was asked to, to take a, a broader leadership role um, as the division chief. And I've been now the chief of the division for the last five years and uh, the service line director for the last about two years or so while um, our system has uh, grown from one hospital um, to where it is now. Absolutely. And it's, you know, so interesting to see that you've had these uh, leadership responsibilities during a time of high growth for the health system, but then too, you know, during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So what's that been like to, to really lead the cardiology line and, um, you know, during these kind of interesting and uncertain times? Uh, an adventure. I think every day is an adventure. Um, the we, My wife's also a physician and we often joke that uh, none of us expected nor really would have asked for a pandemic in the middle of our career because the challenges that's put on the healthcare system overall have just been so unprecedented. Um, navigating how do you take care of uh, an illness that no one knows anything about, um, what are the cardiovascular impacts of that? Um, it was exciting in a weird sort of way as a clinician when it first started happening as we were all doing these fun things in the standpoint of collaborating in ways that we hadn't for many years. Uh, collaborating with ID, collaborating with pulmonary critical care, collaborating with nurses and critical care nursing to try and figure out what are the next steps to take care of these patients as we've learned more about um, what was required to get patients through this, you know, unknown illness, really. Um, it spawned collaborations around hospitals that really had spent a lot of time as competitors. And now all of a sudden we're collaborating about how are we going to take care of patients? How are you managing your patients on ECMO? Who has ECMO supplies? Who doesn't? Um, and um, we're uh, about 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia and the Penn Advanced Heart Team organized a regional conference every week that we're now turning back on um, in order to share ideas about how we can take care of these uh, very sick patients um, as we you know, continue to learn more about this disease. So that aspect of it, you know, clinically and intellectually has been fun in a way, um, depressing because of the extent of the uh, impact this has had on our patients. Um, and really the other depressing piece is the, the extent it's had on our hospitals. So um, trying to navigate supply chain issues, navigate personal protective equipment. Those are sort of challenges you never really thought too much about. I was in 
meetings where we talked about triage strategies as our ERs were filling up these patients and our hospital wards were filling up with these patients about a year ago. And there were conversations I hadn't had since I was in the military when I was in Iraq. And you have to have, we're going to talk about triage. How do we triage people? So that was a little shocking. And interestingly, not, not a lot of cardiology in a sense, you know, as much as it came down to how do we um, get the organization rallied together get people doing things that they hadn't done in a long time or doing things that were different than their usual day-to-day stuff. And then on the flip side, there's been in a lot of literature last year, uh, the heart attack volume kind of dried up for like four or five months. Um, so kind of we're all these heart attacks. So it was a very interesting time, I think, to, to be in that role, um, both challenging clinically, uh, challenging administratively, um, and challenging personally as, as we were all trying to figure out what do we do and, and how do we take care of these patients, how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our staff? Um, very interesting times. Absolutely. Um, definitely unprecedented, but that's, you know, turned into a buzzword now. So anyhow, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, given everything we've been through over the past 18 months in particular, what are some of the biggest issues that you're still dealing with in cardiology today? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges we have is uh, stable staffing for our hospitals and our procedural suites. Uh, much like the nursing shortage, which has gotten a lot of attention, there's similar shortages for staffing in cath lab and procedural areas. And that's been a challenge um, for all the same reasons that the nursing uh, areas have had challenges and even other areas within our society um, with the change in workflows, the change in work environments, uh, people staying home for childcare as we were all in this lockdown um, has had its impact then in the procedural areas. So I think that's been one big challenge we've had is how do we keep our staffing levels at a level uh, to support the kind of care we need to deliver uh, has been one of the real big challenges that we've been facing, at least locally. Um, I think one of the other big challenges is that how do we come out of the economics of all this? Uh, hospitals are obviously some have really struggled, some have done okay. Um, ours certainly struggled a little bit, and now coming back, uh, how does that impact um, us moving forward? How do we continue to have the resources we need to care for our communities, and what's the downstream um, changes in the economic structures of how we deliver care and how hospitals work? Um, I don't know what that's going to be, and I think no one really does. Uh, and what's going to emerge out of the, the changes that we're all initiating to try and tackle some of those nursing shortages, which leads to then bed shortages, which then you know, backs up the whole system. Um, and then, as I mentioned initially, bleeds over to how do we uh, staff our procedural rooms with the, the right talented individuals in order to take care of patients. I think that's been one of the, the big challenges that I didn't actually expect to come out of this um, that we've been working around. Um, I think the, the other big challenge I see, and it, it is somewhat related to the issues around the pandemic, is the change in the physician workforce as well as the change in the nursing and the, the tech workforce. Um, the phys- cardiologist as a whole in the profession are on the older side, and I know within our area, uh, we've seen a lot of the physicians that are on the you know, upper end of their career that might work and continue to see patients for several more years saying, you know, I think I'm done. Um, And so we see a declining volume of cardiologists um, and it's paired up at a time 
when there's continuing to uh, have a growing need, um, not only associated with the COVID pandemic, but associated with the other um, continued increasing prevalence of chronic diseases that are tied to the cardiovascular issues, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, that we know are also continuing to be on the rise, and yet we have this diminishing cardiology workforce. And how do we balance that so that you, um, again, have access to care for the patients that you need to care for, that you're not um, burning out the physicians that you have? I think that's one of the other big issues that we're facing is the, the impact that not only COVID, but then the changing structure of what we do is having on our physicians and our nurses and our advanced practice providers. Absolutely. And obviously it's so critical to be able to, you know, maintain and retain as many of the heart specialists as possible. It's such an important um, area of practice for, you know, healthcare professionals. So when you look at the future and see kind of where the field is headed, um, what, is there anything that can be done, I guess, in order to, you know, mitigate some of these challenges that will occur when, and, and if a shortage of cardiologists, um, occurs in the future or, or is it still something that doesn't have, you know, there's not really a great solution out there for? I think there's actually some super exciting solutions, as crazy as that may sound. Yeah. I think uh, we start to look at how are um, the startup artificial intelligence companies and artificial intelligence programs, how are they going to start to influence the work we do? How can we use that kind of technology to take something that normally take us maybe 30 minutes if we add in some of the AI work that's out there, maybe we can take a 30-minute project or job, reading an ECHO, reading an EKG, reading a Nuke study, whatever it is, and start to consolidate that down. So that it's not that we just have to keep working more. There's ways out there we can, and it's a bit of a cliche, but we can work smarter. We can start to use some of this technology that's out there to really allow us to get more done in less time. And what a lot of the AI studies are starting to show probably be get it done more accurately as well. And so I think that's a really exciting area that as we start to really look and say, well, I don't have as many people to do this. We still have the same amount of work. How can we process through this in a smarter way? I think AI is going to be a real big part of that. Um, we see some of that in radiology right now. Um, I think the applications in cardiology are just getting started. But I think that's going to be one big way that, that we, uh, or one big solution um, as we do it. I think the other thing is the, the telemedicine piece. Um, we certainly saw a lot of it in the middle of the pandemic. That's not going to go away. Um, in fact, I have a patient that I'm going to do a visit. He just was discharged from acute care hospital. His wife has a hard time getting him in to see me. We need to go over his medication list. What a perfect televisit, right? I, you don't have to come in to see me. We can see each other. We can go over how you're doing. We can go over your medications. And I think when we've looked even deeper than at the level of technological capabilities and some of the wearables that are out there, we're going to be able to construct an office visit via wearables and, and video conferencing that can in many ways mimic someone coming to the office. Uh, and, and I think that's a big wave of the future that we're all going to have to learn and adapt and figure out how do we get the right information to deliver the right kind of care. Uh, my daughter is 23 and she can't imagine going to the doctor's office. You can just do that on your phone, right? That's what's coming up. That's going to be the expectation for the care that we deliver. So I, I think that helps um, mitigate some of the, the, the staffing challenges. Um, it's going to be a different way to deliver care for sure. And it's going to be leveraging different kinds of information to 
get to the same place as to how we're delivering care, what's wrong with the patient, what's the right treatment strategy. Um, but I think that that between some of the AI workouts that's out there, um, some of the wearable technology that starts to become more uh, easily integrated into our electronic health record system so that we can digest that as we're having our interactions with the patients, I think that those will help to, to get through some of those issues. And then I think the, the non-invasive imaging world um, continues to get better and better. So um, it, it'd be nice if we get to the point where a, a diagnostic catheterization becomes a little less common because we've got such great non-invasive imaging through the, the growth expansion and improvement of cardiac CTA, for example, um, broader expansion of cardiac MRI technologies, where we've got most of the answer uh, that we think we need before we even do an invasive test on that patient. I think that will start to shift some of that work into different areas where some of the staffing pieces um, are going to be a little easier. And then I think what we see already in, in some areas more than others is um, services being delivered outside of acute care hospitals. Um, orthopedic surgery has been very ahead of this curve for a long time. And the um, uh, state of Pennsylvania is a little trickier, a little um, more conservative about this in the cardiovascular space. But we're starting to see where you can deliver cardiovascular care outside of the acute care hospital where the lower risk patients can get more um, efficient uh, care get the same quality of care. I think that the, the, the downstream effect of that, that we have to be careful about is how does that impact the economics and cost structures of our acute care hospitals? Because we can't leave only the most complex six patients in an acute care hospital in our current economic structure and say, oh, please make this work. So I think there has to be a balance. I think those are some of the ways that we're going to be able to navigate out of this um, and continue to improve the kind of care we deliver. That, those are some excellent points. It's just so interesting to think about um, some of the different drivers that are invoking these changes and, and making, you know, you think about how um, heart care will be delivered in the future. Are there any other uh, things that you see evolving in the field in the next 18 months or so? I think I touched on some of them. I think the one that, that has, is still struggling to find its home um, is, is the value-based care. Um, it, it, some of the Medicare uh, value-based options in the cardiovascular space um, had had a run for a couple of years prior to the pandemic. Um, and, and the pandemic really shone a bright light on some of the economic challenges of, of delivering that even in, in uh, a pretty well-controlled fashion. And a lot of those got suspended. I think we're going to have to circle back to that. I, I think the healthcare system overall in cardiovascular disease, as you mentioned earlier, is one of the most common, um, is a big driver of costs. And, and I think um, physicians and physician leaders have to start um, to embrace the idea of being a, a good steward of the fiscal side of what we deliver as well as the clinical side of what we deliver. And maybe value-based purchasing, bundled purchasing models are part of that. I think if we look at the history so far of those, we haven't really found exactly the right formula to drive the kind of success we're looking for. But I think to continue to grow um, and afford the kind of care we know we want to deliver to our patients in the United States, that's going to be another piece that's going to continue to evolve. 
Absolutely. And it, you know, it's just um, really interesting to, to think about that as well. There's so many different aspects of um, heart care, whether it's the clinical side or, you know, the value-based care side uh, is just, will be fascinating. Um, what are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? You know, I think what I'm most excited about today is the technology that we're seeing, um, how that's translating to outcomes for our patients um, I think the success of, of like transcatheter aortic valve programs, um, how a thoughtful application of and careful research has been able to show a technology um, can work, how it can be rolled out in a safe fashion, and how we've taken something that um, used to require an open heart operation. And yeah, some still need that, but if they don't, we can do this in a way that sends a lot of the patients home the next day. That's pretty amazing. If you'd have told me that when I started my medical career, uh, there's no way. Um, so I think that kind of technology, and we're just seeing that continue to grow. We see that in the EP space with some of the leadless pacemaker work. That's only going to get better as our technology gets better. So I think that kind of, of device-based as well as the um, continued growth of pharmaceutical interventions, um, PCSK9 inhibitors, for example. I mean, to think that we've got a medication that can get a patient's LDL level into the 20s. That's crazy. We would have never imagined that. And I think we don't yet know what's the impact of that on cardiovascular disease. If the LDL hypothesis is as true as we all think it is, we're going to see a real impact of, of driving those down. So to me, that's like super, super exciting. I think the collaborative nature of healthcare, certainly in the cardiovascular space, is super exciting. It started Again, I think with TAVR and, and the heart team and showing how bringing cardiologists and heart surgeons together can drive novel therapies and improve patient care. And now you start to see it in other areas, cardio-oncology. Let's work together and understand how new chemotherapeutic agents, how do we make sure that we're monitoring them together, together instead of the oncologist doing their thing and I do my thing and, oh, look, now the EF's down that kind of collaboration, um, high-risk cardio MFM and uh, cardio um, obstetrics, making sure that we're pairing up with the maternal fetal medicine team to identify high-risk patients. And as we've been learning lately and the um, uh, obstetricians I think have known for a while is that those high-risk pregnancies result in high-risk cardiovascular patients. Let's get those plugged into us so that they're getting the care they need so that we don't have to tackle it when it's at its end stage. I think those sort of collaborative areas that cardiology and these other spaces are starting to reach across. So it's not just an organ-centric silo experience in how we care for patients, but it becomes this collaborative nature where we really can identify um, who needs our care, get it delivered to them early, um, and really continue to improve the outcomes of cardiovascular disease like we've been doing for the last 50, 60 years. What makes me nervous? Um, physician burnout uh, makes me really nervous. Um, and not just physician burnout, advanced practitioner burnout, um, nursing burnout. We're seeing that in some of the downstream effects from the pandemic, um, how we can continue to maintain that, um, the calling and, and drive for our fellow man that brought all of us into healthcare um, as we come out of the pandemic is critically important. I think we're continuing to, to learn um, that that burnout is real, um, that it impacts patient outcomes and patient care. And I think making sure that we get um, 
that attention it deserves, the administrative side of the house starts to understand what are the drivers of it. How do we as physician leaders understand what the drivers are of it? And how do we start to mitigate that? I think that's one of the big things that worries me right now. It's definitely something that is top of mind for a lot of healthcare executives and physicians, and I'm sure patients as well, as they're trying to figure out how they can get the care that they need when there are shortages on doctors and nurses and whatnot, um, you know, in, in, in this very challenging time. So before we wrap up our conversation and, and along those lines, could you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Sure. I, th- I think the first thing um, I would say is, is identify your vision. What do you want to do? And then just like uh, the rest of our medical training, set a path to get you there. Develop your communication skills. Identify a mentor. Um, you, actually, I'm a big believer in multiple mentors. I, I think having different areas where you get advice and, and have some expert opinions to help you grow in, in the space you want to grow is super important. Um, I, the second piece would be always remember your roots. Um, we're in this to take care of people, um, and taking care of patients is the core of everything we do. For me, I find it's really important that I maintain that clinical part of my practice. Reminds me why we do what we do. Reminds me why it's important to get it right, um, because those people's lives depend on us. Um, and then I think the, probably the other thing I remind myself a lot as I go is, um, is as easy it is. To, to believe that your idea is the best idea. Often as you're working through projects and ideas, your idea probably may not be the best idea and to not be too attached to that as you work through um, and develop new projects and tackle issues. Let's be probably my three off the top of my head. Dr. Elgin, thank you so much for uh, joining our podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Absolutely. I would love to invite me anytime. It's great to chat with you.